Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are coming to you in August. We, we've, we've made it to August here in, in this, this long, extended college baseball offseason. Uh, Joe and I will be joined here on the podcast by Oklahoma coach Skip Johnson in a little bit. Skip's going to talk a little bit about uh, the Sooners in 2020, uh, they were the only team in the country that had its entire rotation drafted. Uh, you know how that rotation stacked up, and and now what the Sooners' outlook is uh, going into the 2021 season. We uh, we we continue with the the weekly podcasts here throughout the off season. So make sure to subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app: Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts. You can find us. Please, please subscribe. Please rate, review if you can. Uh, it helps us, and it helps other people to find the podcast uh, as as a nice little bonus. So, if you could do that for us, we we greatly appreciate it. Uh, Joe, we uh, we've made it to to August. You've been watching some uh, some summer college baseball, uh, you know, in the the Coastal Plain League here around North Carolina. But you've uh, you've also encountered some trouble while you've uh, while you've been trying to take in that that baseball. Uh, in regards to your car. Yeah, so I got like a frustrating situation. Um, I, so, and I, you know, me and my fiance live together, two car situation. We're, we're blessed in that way, which I, I don't say that with snark. I mean, that, that is true. But two car situation, you know, we're both working from home these days. So, you know, I've been able to get to the coastal playing games just fine, just driving her car. But um, it did throw a little hitch into it. I was getting ready to go to games on Friday. I was going to the store the day before and uh, discovered like standing water in my passenger seat, the floorboard, not in the seat, the floorboard. And I guess I should preface it. You know, I, I drive a 12 year old Toyota Highlander, which to this point has been a, a beauty in terms of like, in not giving me issues. It was a hand-me-down from my, my grandfather. I, I bought it off my grandfather when he uh, stopped driving. Um, you know, I just bought it from him and um, you know, it, was new, fairly new and had low mileage on it when I got it from. So it was, you know, is basically as good as getting a, a new car and it's been wonderful. Uh, this is really the first frustrating thing I've had to deal with. So I get this standing water in my car and I, so I open the door and it's hot and humid here as it is just about everywhere this time of year. And, uh, given that there is water in the floorboard of the passenger seat, it smelled 
and kind of felt exactly like you think it would smell and feel. And I'm like, what on earth is going on here? So I go to the store, I come home, then I start to investigate. And sure enough, I pull up like the, the, I take the floor mat out. I pull up that interior lining and there's just like a pool of water underneath there. And of course there's these little pads underneath that lining that basically are operating as sponges now. (laughs) They're just filled with water. And so I've spent the better part of the last few days, um, you know, trying to keep that mitigated. I took it to a shop on Friday. Uh, they could not get it, get it clear. I guess Toyota Highlanders, as it turns out, have like a water drainage issue when, as they get older, um, that is a known issue that kind of crops up. So uh, the shop that I took it to couldn't get it cleared. Uh, it was beyond what they were willing or able to do, at least in the, you know, I just kind of drove it up there and they kind of snuck me into the schedule. Uh, so now I'm working with a specialist on water leaks and vehicle interiors. So I'm, I have that guy coming out tomorrow. Of course, in the meantime, um, you know, uh, it was a torrential downpour here this morning and more rain is supposed hurricane, to come. In fact, yes, bands from the hurricane, uh, are, you know, coming through in, in the Carolinas. And so, uh, you know, that's not helping this morning. I went back out there to kind of check on the situation because we had gotten a whole bunch of rain. Uh, there was more water, uh, because it's not, Part of the issue is that, you know, it's water from the air conditioner, the condenser. Uh, some of that water is from that. Some of the water is just runoff from the windshield that's just not draining properly. So, like, I'm, I'm catching it from all angles here, and the, the, the extra rain is not helping. So, your boy went out uh, probably about a half hour before we started this podcast, and with more rain coming, uh, I bought a car cover. You know, like one of those covers that, like, people put on their hot rods, you know, so they don't get it scratched or scuffed or get, you know, just gunk from trees on their paint jobs. I'm just buying it to keep the water off. So I get a water resistant car cover to withstand the rain that is coming, like guaranteed to come this afternoon or this evening, uh, just to try to fend it off long enough uh, to get the specialist that, I, that the interior specialist that I have coming. Uh, thankfully it's a mobile service. He, he brings the uh, service to us, that is nice. Uh, he's coming out tomorrow morning, uh, and then maybe my long national nightmare here with water in my vehicle uh, will be over. But it's been, it's just been frustrating. It's one of those things, I don't know if you've ever had issues, Teddy, with like just these kind of frustrating car issues that have really lingered. I, I'm not really great with, you know, it's not great when you have to pay for repairs, but like I can wrap my head around that. What's frustrating for me is like if I've got an issue, like maybe this is petulant of me, but like when I've had an issue, like I want to take it somewhere and then have it taken care of. And if the repair takes a while, it's fine. But like, I hate when it lingers over days and days and days and days. And when I was in college, I used to have this theory that all the bad stuff that you need to take care of always happens on Friday afternoon when there's not much else you can do about it. Cause it's Friday afternoon and stuff's closing down and they're going to be closed Saturday and Sunday, or maybe just Sunday. And you're gonna have to wait until Monday to do anything about it. Um, that was kind of the case here, you know, ran into Friday afternoon and trying to deal with it and still not resolved. And um, again, I, I realize in the grand scheme of things, like this is a, in, in the grand scheme of things, especially in a global pandemic, like this falls on the scale of, you know, very minor problem. However, that does not mean it's not annoying to go out to your car and have to mop up water from your passenger seat floorboard just about every day. That has not been a fun uh, thing for me to be doing over the weekend the last few days um, but hopefully on the next podcast I will have an update on the water in the car situation that will be much more positive than this one yeah that's uh that's a strange one uh, I once had a car a Dodge Caliber that like it was a design flaw and so the 
when the AC was on, like the water like leaked onto the undercarriage chassis situation and like the whole thing would rust out. Um, so that was cool. I mean, that mm. had had like a part recall on it though. So yeah. as long as you like had Dodge take care of it, the, it, it got paid for, but still uh, annoying and ultimately compromised the, the life of the car. Um, I mean, so yeah, cars, they're, uh, they're cars. They require maintenance. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I'm not even one of those. Um, I'm not even someone who's like so privileged that like I've never had, you know, I've, I've had brand new cars. Like um, favorite car I've ever driven is actually a brand new Mazda three. I bought right after I graduated college. Um, and, and, uh, and I, I sold that basically just to, uh, when I, when I got the SUV of my, um, from my grandpa's, but uh, love that car. So it's not, I have had new cars, but I've mostly like, I've mostly been, I, th- I think everyone, when they learn to drive, like it, sh- it should just be a thing where you have to drive a crappy car first, because I think it gives you a lot of appreciation for good cars you have later in life. Because I had this run of cars, like my freshman year of college, I drove a, an old maroon Toyota Corolla that had like um, the upholstery on the ceiling was like ripping apart and coming down, like hanging just so like there was almost like a sheet between me and the back seat. <laughs> um, Cause there was that and that car um, just blew up on me uh, on I 45 North headed to Huntsville. Uh, I was headed back to class. I had been back home for the weekend. So Monday morning I'm driving back up to class. The car wasn't accelerating properly. So I hit the gas thinking like, Oh, what's going on here? And bang. And I hear like a big old pop and there's smoke coming out of the back of my car. I'm like, well, that's all she wrote for that car. Uh, then I drove a long bed white Chevy C1500 long bed pickup uh, for about six months until it had a brake issue that was going to call, that was going to require $1,500 to $2,000 in brake work, which at 19 years old in college, I did not have that money. So uh, I moved on from that car. Then I started borrowing my aunt's car that, uh, I don't know, I guess the statute of limitations has run out on this. I realized like two months into driving it, she did not have current insurance on the vehicle. Um, and I didn't own it and I don't even know if it was registered to be honest with you. (laughs) So somehow I made it with that vehicle and that actually, that actually lasted me a while until then me and my, the the girl I was in a relationship with at the time we were living together and, uh, we were able to kind of split vehicles and whatnot for a little while until, um, until I graduated college. My whole college career was just pocked with, um, crappy cars. So it's not even like I'm coming from a place of privilege is like, this is the first time I've ever had to deal with something with my car. Um, but it's, it, this is, this one has been particularly frustrating because it seems like such a mind, like something that that should have been minor that is now stretched into like four or five days. And there's been reasons for that, but, um, it's, it's almost more annoying that it's just something like that rather than some big fix, which I'm glad it's not a big expensive thing, but, uh, frustrating nonetheless. You're listening to Car Talk on NPR. I, uh, I as a kid, loved Car Talk. So, shouts to Click and Clack. Yeah, no doubt, man. No doubt. Well, uh, with, uh, with all of that, you know, we, uh, we, we, we welcome you back from, from Car Talk to the <laughs> Baseball America College podcast. And the, the thing about, you know, I have no transition here. <laughs> we... Uh, we appreciate Shooters you had a souped up pitching staff in 2020. <laughs> we appreciate you for sticking with us throughout the, the off season. We're going to continue coming at you once a week so that we can talk about our cars and also so that we can talk about college baseball. We're 
you know, still rolling out our top 25s over at the website. And this week, uh, because the draft signing deadline was technically August 1st, um, everyone had signed prior to that by about a week, I think, ultimately. Uh, but anyway, the, the deadline has come and gone for, for draft picks to sign. So we can now kind of reassess where teams stand everyone signed from the draft. So we're, we spent this week's top 25 looking at the 25 biggest holes uh, around college baseball. And, you know, like I mentioned, Oklahoma had its entire rotation drafted this year. And so that leaves a pretty significant hole for the Sooners in 2021. The Sooners also this year were off to a, a really nice start, 14 and four into the top 10. Uh, when the season was halted, they, uh, you know, had a, a big moment at the Shriners College Classic in Houston when Dane Acker threw a no-hitter uh, against LSU to close out uh, the Sooners' appearance there in, in the tournament, the first time LSU had been no-hit in 40 years. And, you know, so the, Oklahoma had something cooking really good this year. And Joe was on the Sooners from the preseason. And, you know, so we're never going to know what they could have been, but, you know, that what they were in 20 was impressive. What they can be in 21 is interesting to look at, given what's, uh, what's transpired here in the last couple of months, both with the Sooners losing their whole rotation, but also with half a dozen of the Sooners seniors quickly committing to returning once they were given that option by the NCAA. So all of that makes for Oklahoma to be a pretty interesting topic an interesting team to look at. I know Joe and I had a difficulty ranking them in our never too early 2021 top 25. So there's a lot going on with Oklahoma. So we wanted to talk through that uh, with Skip Johnson. So we thought we'd bring him on the podcast and, uh, you know, see where Oklahoma is and and see what he thought of, of of the Sooners in uh, the spring season, but before the, uh, before the season was halted. So with that, let's get to Oklahoma coach Skip Johnson. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are very excited to be joined by Oklahoma coach Skip Johnson. Coach, it's, uh, it's been a strange year, uh, obviously, the, the shortened season leading into uh, you know, a, an unprecedented summer. Uh, we want to talk a lot about the Sooners who had an exciting 2020 season from what we were able to see and, and what you guys are going to have coming back in, in 21. But before we do that, just how have you been uh, occupying, you know, your additional time uh, that, that you've had this summer? Well, number one, thanks for having me on. And, well, you know, how I've been occupying my, my yard looks like something from a home and garden magazine and been doing a little bit of fishing with Coach Tadlock from Texas Tech. We're longtime friends, played little league together and uh, uh, playing a little bit of golf as well and been going to our deer lease a lot getting it ready for the upcoming deer season so uh, uh, been kind of social distance in that way and and uh, uh, and watching some video and, and stuff like that well let's uh, let's get to that 2020 team you know you, you went uh, 14 and four this spring got into the top 10 by by the time the shutdown happened what what had clicked? for this group? You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, uh, I kind of take it back to the fall and I kind of take it to our operations guy. We are the best operations guy in the country. 
named Ryan Gaines and, and Coach Overcash and Coach Van Hook did such a great job of recruiting, trying to change the schematics of our team, making us a little bit more a- athletic. And, and uh, you know, we threw Cavalli and, and uh, Wide Odes and, and Levi Prater, uh, those guys at a younger, younger age. And so those guys transitioned and, and kept getting better. But I take it back a lot to what Ryan Gaines, we have an app called Teamworks. And this app is either was made by a guy from Harvard or Yale or whatever. And he said that uh, kids, only, kids today only retain six to ten minutes. And so we started practicing that away. And we started doing like our individual skills were, were six to ten minutes. For an example, the middle infielders might be doing short hops. The third baseman might be doing slow rollers. Uh, the catchers might be doing uh, uh, catching drills. I might be hitting a fungal to the first baseman and the pitcher's covering the bag, going bag, bag, bag. And the outfielders might be doing communication drills. We go six minutes as fast as you can go. And then we meet at the OU in the field and go to one team, like one bunk coverage for six straight minutes. And then go back to an individual. They're doing different things. Go back to a team deal. They might be doing double cuts. Go back to an individual. We, we go for about an hour and 15 minutes like that, as fast as you could go. And we do the same thing offensively. And when that started happening, you know, at first it was different because it was different the way they practiced, but it, made them practice more game-like. They got their heart rate up. Uh, they got a lot of reps in a short amount of time. And it, it helped a lot. And it became a deal where they were hungry for it to go out because it was different than any other practice we had. And uh, um, we go over to Arkansas and play, and we do an offensive deal where you beat the infielders, you bring all the infielders in, and uh, you put a, the breaking ball machine out there, and all you're trying to do is beat the infielders with two strikes. And, uh, uh, you know, their, their body language uh, uh, was, was not very good. And, you, you know, that's what the game wants you to feel. And so we, we, uh, we addressed that. And then we, deal, we did a deal. Line drives and ground balls. But you have a defense out there. The infielders turn a double play. The outfielders. And what happened after that is I've never seen a thing that you practice on a Wednesday and it come to fruition on a Friday where we played them. Our first eight hits were with two strikes in that, in that game, you know, in that scrimmage game against Arkansas. And the arms that we were facing between both teams was just amazing. I mean, it, it really was. And the, the atmosphere for a, a fall game was the environment was really good for our kids. And it was probably really good for their kids. I mean, we were sitting there, and all of a sudden they let those guys in left field, and there were 8,000 people, you know. And, uh, uh, and I thought that was really good for our kids and to learn that environment. And so uh, uh, and that's kind of where it kind of started. And so we go into the season. We know we have Cavalli on Friday, Levi Prater on, on Saturday, and we have uh, um, um, uh, Acker. On, on Sunday, and uh, uh, we're kind of transitioning uh, wide O's into a, be a starter. And so uh, um, that Sunday that we threw the no-hitter against LSU, I have never been around a team about the, from the, about the fifth inning on 
that, you know, you might have a guy that's sitting on the bench and he might be feeling sorry for himself. But I've never been around a team personally that everybody was pulling for one thing. And it was like all of a sudden it brought our team together. And there were some few, you know, there's a few bumps in the roads as we played that schedule 14 and four um, that we go to UTA, our last game to play, and we won it in three different ways. We hit a double. Uh, we scored situational hitting, and we scored by our, by our athleticism. And we scored those three runs. And the guys that, you know, we started a freshman that night, Jake Bennett, and then we threw the relievers that don't normally throw uh, in that game and then closed rough corn, and they pitched really well. And it was really good to see that transition. And you could see us getting a little bit better every week. And I really reflect back on that uh, uh, retainment that they had in the six to eight-minute practices and practice and game life. And I really believe that really helped a lot. And that's what our coaching staff thought. And, and we went through that deal, and, and it was uh, uh, it was pretty fun to watch. You mentioned the no-hitter for Dane Acker there. And I'm curious, I mean, that's going to be something that, you know, you'll take with you throughout the rest of your career and afterwards. And I'm wondering if, you know, 20 years down the road, when you look back on that game, what are going to be your memories of that no-hitter? You started to – you alluded to some of it there. I imagine just kind of that, that team togetherness there might be part of it. But I, I'm curious what kind of memories you think you'll take with you from that game. Really, it's going to be exactly what you said. It'll be from the team. I mean, uh, the players are – you know, we're coaches, and we get some uh, uh, satisfaction out of uh, uh, individual performances, but it's more about the team. And, uh, uh, you know, when, when I first got here, when I was a junior college coach, when I first got here to be the head coach, I learned a lot from Coach Garrido. I mean, a lot about environments. I really thought I knew what I was doing. When I walked in there, I didn't know what I was doing, you know. And he taught me about the environment, him and Coach Harmon. And I learned a lot there to, to, to move on to players. And I've built the program around love and relationships. And, um, you know, us having, you know, Van Hook played for me and Overcash, I had a relationship with him. And so those guys, we've got to be as a close team, as a coaching staff, as the players do. And whatever we're going to ask the players to do, our attitude's got to be the same. And so uh, I think that's the biggest thing that I'm going to take out of it is more than anything. It w was really, you know, we're, we're the bus drivers and we're the guys that uh, – set the structure plan together, they've got to go out and perform. The, uh, the, the pitching staff was one of the reasons why we were excited about the Sooners this spring, and we really saw that play out over the first month of the season. And then again in the draft when you know, all three starters were, were drafted, Oklahoma the only team uh, that was able to say that this year. So you've been around a lot of good rotations throughout your career. What, what stood out about this, this one that you had this year? I think the depth, Teddy, I really do. I mean, I think it was the depth of the pitching staff more so than anything. Uh, you, could, you could run out a guy with a good breaking ball. You could run out a guy with fastball command. You could run out a guy that could build his position, hold runners. And those things, you had the depth and you had guys that were left-handed. You had guys that were right-handed. And then you have the closer at the end that love to be in that moment. You know, uh, uh, Rough Corn, you know, he's an uh, uh, unbelievable team guy. Uh, he loved to get in that situation. 
and it was he, he's a little different. Um, it's a different look than the other guys that we're putting in there. It's kind of low three quarters, uh, and uh, he just attacks the strike zone. The flip side of, of having your entire rotation drafted is now you're in a position where you're going to have to do a little bit of reshaping of that rotation. And I'm, I'm assuming this isn't the first time as, as long as you've been around the game. This is not the first time you've had to do some retooling in the starting rotation. But when you face a challenge like this, where do you even start? What's the process of trying to start from scratch here and build up a rotation that maybe they're not exactly like your 2020 rotation on day one, but you can maybe get them there? What is that process like for you and your staff? Well, again, you said the right word. It's going to be a process. And if you can stay in the process, then the wins and losses will come. It's hard to get those guys to understand that, that process. But you look at, like, you know, uh, getting wide O's to be a starter uh, and giving him some starts in there. And then Jake Bennett and those guys like that. And you try to set that, you know, in practice as you go through it. But it happens a year before, like Ben Abrams. Um, we, he was a starter as a freshman. We brought him out of the pen this past year to try to creep up his velocity, and it did. And so we might be able to transition him back into a starter. We've got a, a left-handed pitcher from Grayson that's uh, Braden Carmichael that could be a starter. We've got Luke Taggart coming in from Santa Barbara from Incarnate Word, a graduate transfer that uh, could be a starter. So when we start putting that process together, and making sure they understand the biggest thing is you go as hard as you can for as long as you can, but it's being in control yourself one pitch at a time. It's easy for us to talk about, but that's where guys get go awry. They start trying to get outs instead of just the only thing they can control is throwing the ball to target. And I would be uh, um, uh, forgetful if I didn't talk about we have, a, we have a mental coach that really helps us, a guy named Tyler Pazic. I mean, he has done a phenomenal job to helping us transition and having those guys retain the mental side of the game. You know, I learned that from Coach Garrido. I, we had Ken Revisa when I was there. And uh, um, so when I came to OU my first year as a head coach, we had good players. There were some good players on that team but they had no clue about the mental game. But halfway through, we hire Brian Kane. He comes in. He does a good job with us. We think we've got it. We think we've got the leadership. The second year, we started off hot right there in the middle part. We had a breakdown a little bit. Guys were struggling. We didn't have that mental coach. Well, the next year, you know, our with how good Joe Castiglione is and Greg Tipton, our uh, – Senior associate athletic director over baseball, you know, I, I had a I talked to him before the year starts to say we've got to get we've got to get a mental coach in here with these guys to start talking to them because there's not but two sports on our campus that deals in failure. It's baseball and uh, uh, softball, and as you well know, with athletes, their body language is important. How they feel feel confident, not confident. They can go five for five one day, then zero for five, and that that confidence, a fragile piece of ice. And so you've got to truly, really try to maintain living in the process of what you guys talk, what you talked about uh, in, on this question. That process is very important in making sure they understand, be where your feet are, as Coach, as Ken Revisa used to say, all the time. And uh, 
all I've done as a pitching coach is uh, uh, is learn from those guys and take that. I'm I'm not the best pitching coach in the world. Never claimed to be. Good pitchers make good pitching coaches. Believe me. And uh, uh, but if we can build that structure and keep those guys in that process, then we're going to be a lot better for it. We've talked a lot about the pitching staff and, and with good reason, but you also had a pretty good offensive core there. Um, you know, we saw Peyton Graham really uh, break out as a freshman. What, um, you know, what did you see from, from him that kind of allowed that? And, and was that something that you guys were, were expecting from him? Well, you know, I'd watched him play and, and he's always had presence. And for him, you know, we thought he might have been a little physically weak. But from day one, when he got here, he, he showed that presence. And even in inner squads, we had power arms and, and guys with power breaking balls. And he never, he never missed a beat. And he's a special player. He's tooled up. Um, he's going to continue to grow and get stronger, continue to grow. His instincts are unbelievable on the bases. Instincts to play defense are, are crazy. Uh, it's, 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 it's really fun to watch because he's just where he's just, I wouldn't say the word dumb. He's just uh, aloof to not really understand the body language of it, not feel like, because he's going to be competitive pitch to pitch. And that's what's a pretty amazing. It's almost like a left-handed pitcher, like he doesn't understand the pressure of the game. He just goes out and plays the game like a Labrador retriever goes and fetches a ball. You keep throwing it, he keeps playing ball. You throw Peyton Graham on the field, he's going to go out there and just play ball. And, uh, uh, and it, it, it's kind of from the old school. It's, it's fun to watch. One of the other guys who was a real catalyst offensively for you is Tanner Treadaway who made a big jump between 2019 and 2020. What was behind that jump for him that allowed him to have the type of success that he saw this past season? I think getting comfortable as much as anything. You know, I was a junior college coach, and uh, uh, the transition from a junior college to a Division I school is all about the environment, more so than the, than the baseball. The baseball is not any different. It's 90 feet, 90, you know, 60 feet, 6 inches. And the environment, you know, you have bigger crowds. And just getting comfortable in the environment, also getting stronger. You know, we moved him. He, he, he's sort of like uh, Kiki Hernandez or Taylor with the Dodgers. He can come in and play the infield. He can go out and play the outfield at a high level. And, uh, um, and him being unselfish, you know, of going, hey, I said, you know, we have two – we have infielders. I said, you're going to help us and we're going to put you in center field. I know you had not played outfield. You'll train, you're a good enough athlete to transition to it. So we're going to put you out there. And he was unselfish. He was like, Coach, I just want to play. And being unselfish and being a team guy, it, that says a lot. You have a large group of seniors that has already said that they want to be back uh, next year and, and committed to, to coming back once the NCAA you know, enacted the, the legislation to give back that, that year of eligibility. What are you looking forward to about having that group back? And what does that say about them as a group that they uh, so quickly, you know, made that, made that move? Well, it talks about the team. It talks about the culture of our program as much as anything. We, you know, we talk about competing, you know, uh, uh, that's our hashtag. It's, uh, uh, you know, the uh, first word is compete. The, O is O before you, the M is mentality, 
the P is process, the E, the e is engaged, the T is toughness, and the E is energy. And it talks about our culture. And uh, uh, they wanted to keep playing. And we were lucky enough, the NCAA, and we were lucky enough that our institution, you know, Joe Castiglione and, and our new president, they're all on board on giving them the next extra year back in the NCAA, open, open the roster up. It was a, a great thing for college baseball. And uh, um, I think the biggest thing for, for us is, and for those kids going into the, going into the fall, because we don't really know what the fall is going to entail, but we'll have enough older guys that we can mix in with the new guys that can teach them about our culture, about our environment, about our mental process, about how we practice, about our energy, about how you get engaged, about the toughness and being unselfish, the mentality, you know, all those things. So older guys can kind of set the wheel. When I was at Texas, I said this, you know, I, I walk into Texas and I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I thought I did. You know, I had so many guys playing the big leagues at Navarro that, that pitched there and I walk into the, I'm the pitching coach and I start looking at it. And when the players buy into the system and they start talking to the younger guys that are coming up in the system, it becomes a weld old will. It starts rolling. And if you can keep that going, it's, it's a, it's a really good thing because attitude plays a very important part and winning and losing, and it plays a very, very important part in your culture. We'll get you out of here on this one. You know, you mentioned the uncertainty of, uh, you know, the fall, but, you know, as you look to 2021, what is it about the 2021 season that excites you for, for these Sooners? I think what excites me is, is watching those guys transition into a team and understanding the process. Um, and building the relationships of the new guys coming in because I've built my life and my coaching career about the relationships. No different if it was for working with Clayton Kershaw, Homer Bailey, or any of those guys that I've worked with, Chris Davis, or any of those guys. Um, it's all about the relationships. Yeah, I want to win national championships, but those relationships that we're going to build coming into it are just as important because when you look back on it, you know, uh, you look back on it, those guys calling you, you know, like Cavalli going to the 60-man, you know, taxi team, Jake Irvin doing those things, uh, Homer Bailey calling me before his last start in the big leagues. Those relationships are what makes me tick. And uh, um, and it, going, in, going into the 21 season, watching those guys grow from week to week, hopefully we'll get to do that. You know, we were on a Zoom call before this call with our parents and our players going over the protocol that our uh, Joe Castiglione and, and Greg Tipton uh, uh, returned to campus and kind of going through that deal, it could change week to week as we go through it. You know, our, our, our football team hadn't tested, hadn't had a, a, test, a positive test in four weeks. So the system that Dr. Snabel, our team doctor, went through our players and our parents with how we're going to go about this is you've got to start early like we're doing a little becomes a lot and I think that's really big this and in the communication has got to be continue to be it could change it's, it's a it's a deal where it could change you know different for the Marlins look what 
you know, look what happened with the Marlins. You know, it's uh, uh, in the Phillies. It's it's going to be a transition as we go through this deal. And it's it's an amazing. I'm just so thankful that Major League Baseball has continued to play because we need baseball. I mean, we got to get baseball back to being the national pastime. It's it's the only sport that is a strategy sport. It's the only sport that deals in failure, and it reveals your character. As Coach Garrido always used to say, I mean, I can go back to – I can tell you stories about Coach Garrido that was so special that, you know, it, it was unbelievable looking at, you know, Mike Gillespie. I remember, uh, you know, uh, bless his heart and their family, and I feel for them, but that guy was unbelievable. We get beat one to nothing in a game in Omaha, then we turn around and beat them one to nothing, you know, and learning, watching that guy control the environment, control the tempo of the game as a, as a head coach. Mike Gillespie was remarkable. I learned a lot that night just by paying attention to him coaching. Absolutely. Mike Gillespie, one of the, uh, one of the absolute best, and of course, matching up with Augie—that's—that's that's an all-time matchup there. So, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine how how much you know you can learn just from being in the dugout, uh, you know, watching a game like that. And and uh, you know, certainly uh, both of those men will, will be missed around college baseball. You know, I think of it all the time. I probably it's probably once a week. I, you know, I think about Coach Garrido, and uh, um, you know, I still say. To this day, I, I really would like the coach of the year to be named the Augie Garrido Award. I, I do. I mean, it's uh, I think he was that important to college baseball. He was that important to college coaches because of the pay that he got and and his the mental side of the game that he brought to it is amazing. Absolutely. You know, truly, truly one of the greats, uh, you know, not just in baseball, not just in college baseball, but really when you look uh, when you look beyond that, what he was able to accomplish in his career. And um, yeah, I just truly in awe of, of what he was able to build at Fullerton and, and you know, then take that over and, and do it at a place like Texas. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was he was amazing and he was he, he was a special guy and I'm I'm really blessed to have gotten a coach for him. You know, I got to coach for him for 10 years. And, uh, um, and it was, it was a blessing it really was. Awesome. Well, coach, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to break that all down, talk a little bit about the Sooners and, and, and more. So we, uh, we really enjoyed having you here on the baseball America college podcast today. Well, I, I appreciate all y'all do for college baseball. And I, I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity to come on. I love to, uh, talk about baseball I love to talk about pitching and I love to talk about young kids learning how to uh, deal with the process thank you again to Oklahoma coach Skip Johnson for joining us here today on the Baseball America College podcast Joe I part of the reason well we brought Skip on to, to talk about everything we just did uh, but I also uh, when we were talking about whether you know, what, what we could talk about with Skip, I, I said that, you know, you, you can just use this as an opportunity to gloat more about being right about Oklahoma. So uh, you were right. And what was it that you saw early this season that, that you thought was going to be good about Oklahoma that then 
you know, bared itself out once they got playing. Yeah, they just really knew who they were on the mound. I mean, Dane Acker was a little bit of an, an unknown to a certain degree, but I mean, look, that was a guy who was recruited by Rice out of high school. Then he went to a, you know, the junior college level and had success. So calling him even unproven is a little bit of a stretch. I mean, they, they really knew who they were uh, from a pitching staff side and the rotation is the first piece of it, but in the bullpen as well, one of the things when I talked to Skip Johnson during the 2019 season that he said was that, you know, the bullpen, and I'm paraphrasing here, that conversation's been, you know, a year and a half ago now, but it was early in the 2019 season when when Oklahoma was overachieving at the time a little bit. And one of the things that that he talked about was that the bullpen had kind of come along and that they were getting getting a lot from, uh, uh, you know, guys in the bullpen that maybe – were younger or were a little more inexperienced and maybe that some of that was a little bit unexpected. And so spin it forward a year. And of course now those guys are a little bit more experienced. The rotation would be better. So they, there wouldn't be as much on those guys. Wyatt Olds was one of those guys as a freshman, you know, had an outstanding 2019 and then comes back in, in 2020. And now he's a guy who's probably looking at being in the rotation in, in 2021. So I like that piece of it. And then offensively, look, they, they weren't, good in 2019 especially at the end of the season I saw them at the big 12 tournament and offensively they just looked out of gas like I don't even know how to describe it they just kind of lifeless offensively there just was nothing going and the numbers weren't great but even beyond the numbers they just they really looked like a team that just didn't have any answers offensively and the numbers outside of Tanner Treadway and Peyton Graham on offense in 2020 don't necessarily jump out at you but what I really liked about them is it was an experienced group and that if you set a baseline of guys like Brady Lindsley, you know, who, by the way, got drafted. So he's, he's one of the pieces that will be missing from 2021, but going into 2020, you looked at a guy like Brady Lindsley, Tyler Harden, Hardman, Brandon Zaragoza, who really good defensive shortstop offensively, you kind of just get what you get, but really good defensively there, you know, plus Justin Mitchell at catcher. And then you had all these different guys in the mix. They had a lot of different pieces. They were going to try to maybe move around and platoon and, and do all that. And I just felt you're bringing back a veteran core. And if what they were in 2019 sets the baseline for what they're going to be, which by the way, that 2019 team was a handful of wins away from being a regional team, three, four wins. So they really didn't have to do a lot to be better in 2020 and I think you saw that with, okay, Tanner Treadaway goes from a guy in 2019 who is just a guy at best to really being an impact bat. Um, doesn't get much better than what he did through four weeks. And then you've got an instant impact guy in Peyton Graham as a freshman who comes in and, and do what he do, did what he does. And Justin Mitchell took a step forward. And really the guys like Lindsay, Lindsley, Hardman, and Zaragoza were really just the same guys they've always been. But that's kind of what I was getting at, is that you know what you're going to get from those kind of guys, and now you just need some of the guys with maybe – some higher ceilings or that, you know, we're, we're kind of being brought along in 2019 and weren't ready for the big spotlight. If those guys make jumps, now you're really cooking. And I think that's what we saw from them offensively. And that's a lot of what gives me optimism that 2021 is going to be another good season for them because yes, you do have the questions on the pitching staff, um, but you do have some answers on that side. And now offensively, it's kind of flipped where now they really know who they are offensively because they do have most of those impact bats back. And the, the pitching piece, and look, when Skip Johnson is your head coach, like I'm going to give you a little bit of benefit of the doubt that you're going to figure out who your guys are pitching-wise. So I've actually got confidence that I don't think they're going to be capable of achieving what they could have achieved in 2020, but I still think this team is going to be pretty good in, in 2021. Yeah, I mean, 
losing Cade Cavalli, uh, who's went in the first round of the Nats. I mean, that's a huge loss for this team. And then Prater and Acker behind him are, you know, just really good pitchers. They're not, you know, first round elite arm talents like Cavalli, obviously, but they, they're really good pitchers to be rounding out your weekend rotation with to, to be backing up this, this big time power arm on Friday nights. But I, I think that, you know, in Jake Bennett, who was the midweek starter as a freshman and wide olds who struck out 29 batters in 19 innings as a sophomore uh, in kind of a multi-use role uh, to have those two guys that you can plug in in significant roles, however they choose to use them. I think those are two really, really strong options. And, you know, this is a, a coaching staff that recruits junior colleges very well. Dane Acker is evidence of that. You know, not that anyone had to unearth Dane Acker's talent. Like Joe mentioned, he went to Rice out of high school and, and transferred to San Jack. Like no one, no one needed to, to be, you know, really beating the bushes to, to find a player like that. Uh, but they, they can find really good players in junior college and they can get elite junior college players like Dane Acker to, to come to them. And, you know, that, that's a credit to, to the staff. And if they, if they go that route, if they go a high school route, if they go, you know, moving a reliever into a starting route, you know, they have, they'll have options. You know, I, I don't worry about Oklahoma and, and having pitching. It's just, will it be elite pitching? That, that's kind of the, the question we're at here. They, they got hit a little bit in terms of their recruiting class in the draft. They, they lost some big time players like Ed Howard and, uh, Dax Fulton, but also to an extent that was expected. Uh, you know, so they'll, they'll still be bringing in some some talented players, but they they did lose some of the the big time guys uh, off of that group. So we'll see where where the pitching staff goes. But yeah, it's almost more interesting to see where where the the offense goes because you know you look at Payne Graham, what he could do as a freshman, and and you just kind of wonder like, okay, what what's the what's the next step? What, what's that look like? as a sophomore and, and you can do that for a lot of guys. I mean, they were a little bit of a, you know, they, they have opportunity for growth offensively. And if they're able to tap into that, maybe if the pitching staff isn't quite as elite, you know, the, the offense makes up for it a little bit. And uh, you know, the losses they sustain on the mound matter just a, just a little bit less maybe. Yeah. I think it, it speaks to on the, on the pitching side, it, it speaks to how many options they have that it feels like a little bit of a forgotten man is Ben Abram, who was the midweek starter two years ago and was a guy that I thought coming into this year that, you know, if let's just say that, you know, it could be an injury. You know, that's that's the thing that happens. You know, guy gets hurt or maybe Dane Acker is just, you know, not ready for pitching in the Big 12, what have you. Like, I was actually pretty confident that Ben Abram was a guy who would be able to step in and and, and fill in that role pretty well. You know, big six foot seven kid from Ontario and uh, he was more of a reliever in, in 2020. So to, kind of to your point, I, I think that um, they've got – they've just got options. And you have to imagine some of those hit. Do they have the next Cade Cavalli on the roster? Maybe. Probably not. You know, I mean, that's just – those types of arms don't don't typically just appear. Um, so there's that. But I just – I'm with you and that I think they're just going to throw kind of a whole bunch of guys out there come fall, whatever the fall looks like, or in the spring, and they're going to find the guys. And I'm really interested to see what this next gear is for this team offensively. Like, what does Tanner Treadway look like for a whole season? You know, Peyton Graham the same way. 
they, they've also got a little bit of a log jam, like because, like I said, they were kind of mixing and matching a little bit, specifically in the outfield. You know, coming into the season, there was, you know, Skip was a little bit um, unsure about who exactly was going to be manning those outfield positions, and, and Treadaway, of course, grabbed one of those and, and held on to it tightly. But they've got a lot of guys that they're going to try to or going to try to mix and match out there. And that's still going to be an issue given that they only played 18 games. There are still some questions to be asked of who their ultimate lineup is going to be. And so uh, that, that cuts both ways. You'd like to know who your guys are, but on the other hand, I just think they're going to have a really, really competitive fall and spring. And I think head coaches will kind of universally tell you that, yeah, it's great to know that you've got nine guys who you really trust, you know exactly who they are, but in a lot of ways it's, 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 it's almost better to have, a little bit more competition to where there's just um, you know you're able to kind of see what you have a little bit and it's a little bit different tenor to the preseason practice period versus knowing knowing you being able to write your lineup in October for example yeah absolutely and, and so we'll we'll see where where Oklahoma takes that I think that you know that like, like I said Joe and I have been kind of all over the place with uh with Oklahoma in 2021 already in our rankings we've only done it twice and uh just placing them both times it, it has not been easy so uh I, I'm going to be very interested to see how that goes um you know what the what the fall looks like on, on in whatever form it may appear uh is is going to be interesting to see and and just see where where they get some of the growth uh you know as as time progresses there, you know, the, the spring and then into, or the fall and then into the spring as well, because it's a, it's a different looking team. And, but, but in in some respects, it's, it's a different looking team, you know, on the mound, but, you know, like, like we said, the, there are a lot of hitters back and, you know, there's going to be competition like, like Joe was talking about there. So I, I will be very interested to see how everything uh, shakes out there in Norman. Uh, all right, so Joe mentioned that we did this top 25 of holes to fill. Um, Oklahoma's rotation checked in at number three. Uh, the two that were ahead of that, number one, Arizona State's infield. Uh, the Sun Devils lost Torkelson first base, as well as shortstop Alika Williams and third baseman Gage Workman. So pretty significant to have lost three of the four members of your infield, uh, especially when one of them is the number one overall pick in the draft. And then number two, Nick Gonzalez from New Mexico state, obviously uh, he just leaves a massive hole. And when you're taking Nick Gonzalez out of New Mexico state's lineup, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're taking the best player in program history uh, out of the lineup. So that's that's going to leave a mark and uh you know maybe new mexico state will find more impact players uh this year and, and into the future i have no doubt that they will but will any of them ever be nick gonzalez you know that's uh that's going to be a very lofty bar and you know to, to think that the aggies are going to replace him with just one person uh it, it, it's probably folly so you know, Brandon Dieter is the guy that is expected to take over at shortstop for New Mexico State. He has a big amateur uh, track record, comes as a transfer from Stanford, but that's, it's still big, big shoes to fill. So we'll be interested to, to see what happens there uh, in Las Cruces. Uh, to round out the top five, uh, number four was George's rotation. 
Bulldogs, of course, losing Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox. Uh, they have many arms, you know, just in, in the same way. I'm not concerned about uh, Oklahoma having enough pitching. I'm not really concerned about Georgia having enough pitching, but those are still two, you know, premium talents. Uh, both were rated as first round talents, even if Wilcox wasn't drafted into the third round. I mean, those are two premium guys that that have to be replaced there in Athens. So uh, we'll, we'll see how they handle that. And then number five, Louisville's rotation. Again, two first round talents leaving in Reed Detmers and Bobby Miller. But again, Louisville has options. So we'll we'll see where, where that shakes out. Uh, Joe, when we were putting this together, did uh, – did anything stand out to you and any of these, uh, you know, players or position groups rate higher than you expected to or lower than you expected to just kind of what stood out to you as we were going through this exercise? Yeah. So like, as far as the ranking, it was kind of, you and I had a little bit of a debate about how much do you, how much do you factor in how equipped the program is to replace that guy? And, and, And let's be real. I mean, Nick Gonzalez, it's a talent thing, but also it's to your point, that's the greatest player in program history and probably will be, you know? Um, so, you know, how on earth are they going to replace him? The answer is they don't, they're just going to do the best they can. Um, you know, similarly, I, you know, I had Max Meyer a little bit higher, um, in my initial list that I put together roughly, you know, and then, and we kind of worked it out and, and bumped him down a few cause I had a similar thought process there of like, this guy was like, so his freshman year, he's the closer on a very, very good Minnesota team. And then, you know, they come back in 19, and we still like that team, and even still liked the team to a certain degree in 20, but it was kind of like the bet on Minnesota was the bet on Max Meyer is going to be awesome on Fridays, and you can count on a win there 12 out of 14 weeks, basically. And then you just have to get one other game on the weekend, and suddenly you're a postseason team, basically, if you're Minnesota. You don't have to do that much beyond Max Meyer to be a postseason team. And of course it's more complicated than that. And we kind of saw that, you know, um, with the way Minnesota things have gone for Minnesota the last couple of years, but you know, he's going to be a tough one to replace because that is a generational talent, even in a place like Minnesota that, that has talented players year after year. I mean, he's, he's above and beyond. And so I had him a little bit higher. That's one I thought that my initial reaction was, was a little bit higher on. I'm really fascinated by the situations where teams lost, not just, a player or a group of players that were particularly high profile, but also kind of lost some of the people, the players who might have been elevated into those roles or the players who could kind of mitigate those losses. So I'll give you a couple of examples where Georgia is one that stands out to me because so much of the optimism about Georgia in 2020 was, okay, you're going to start with Hancock and Wilcox. It's, it's the Max Meyer plus one, basically. Two-thirds of the weekend, you're looking great. And, hey, C.J. Smith is a, is a good pitcher who's proven, knows the deal. We feel pretty good about that. Offense was a lot of questions. You and I talked about it on the podcast going into the season. And as the season was wearing on, we saw from Georgia, like, now there were some fits and starts with Georgia. There were some moments where you and I kind of were like, uh, you know, but it kind of felt like they were rounding into form. And you look at some of the reasons why that was. Now, it was Hancock and Wilcox, sure. But then also, hey, Tucker Bradley's awesome. And, hey, Cam Shepard is Cam Shepard. You know, good defensive player. Gives you some pop in the lineup. Well, now you're looking at you lose two-thirds of the rotation with Hancock and Wilcox. And also, a lot of the optimism about the lineup, well, Tucker Bradley's gone and Cam Shepard is gone. And so now they're, George is back in a place now where 
you know, we don't have them ranked in the never too early top 25, just largely on, well, okay, now you have questions on offense again, and you don't really have the pitching to hang your hat on to that same degree. So that was, that was one that stood out to me in that way. The other one I would compare to that is Florida state in a little different way where you could count on CJ Van Eyck being gone. Sure. But then Drohan gets drafted and Antonio Velez signs as a free agent. Whereas before, you know, okay, Van Eyck goes, but it's like, okay, well we have Drohan and, and Velez has pitched in some big games on the midweek. We, we trust him to come back better and guy. And Hey, we're bringing Carson Montgomery onto campus, you know, as a guy who was number 36 in the BA 500, like, you can make a rotation out of that. And Montgomery is still a good start with some of the guys FSU still has on campus. But even losing Van Eyck, I could have talked myself into a rotation that included Drohan, Velez, and Montgomery as a pretty good rotation. Maybe not with a Van Eyck-type guy on Friday, like a real dude, but still a solid rotation. And now they're really starting from scratch there, and it gives me a little bit less confidence in what they're going to be able to put out there. So those are, those are situations that are interesting to me just because of it's not just the guys you lose, it's losing the guys behind that that might have been able to mitigate those losses. Yeah, I mean, looking at Max Meyer, you know, there is no one at Minnesota right now that is really ready, I would say, to take on that that role, even if you ignore the fact that Meyer served as their DH. Like, let's just set that aside. He was a part of the lineup as a DH when he wasn't pitching. Uh, but it's not like he was Brendan McKay as a two-way player. He was okay as a hitter, I guess is, is maybe the best way to describe it. They can find another player. Now, obviously they didn't feel like they had another player that was like that as good as him uh, on the, the roster this year. Otherwise he wouldn't have done that necessarily, but they can find somebody else to hit. I'm relatively confident. But if you look at what he can do on the mound, there's a reason why he went third overall. And, you know, it, it's it's tough. They have a kid in J.P. Massey who is a, you know, this will be his third year on campus, but he's thrown just 44 innings. And he has a big-time arm. And he might have stuff every bit as electric as Max Meyer as hard as that is to believe considering that Meyer throws a hundred and has like a plus plus slider. But, you know, Massey has big time stuff too. He just hasn't harnessed it at all. He hasn't proven it as as a starter, uh, you know, for a a full season at all yet. And so to ask him to come in and, and do what Max Meyer did, like that's a, that's a tall, tall order. And maybe he can do it. And, you know, they also have Patrick Fredrickson, who was the Friday starter on a team that was a super regional team. But Patrick Fredrickson hasn't been the same pitcher for the last two years. So unless they can get Fredrickson right or get Massey to make a a significant jump, there's going to be this hole here without Max Meyer. And it's going to be interesting to see how they go about handling that. And maybe one of those two things happens. Maybe Massey is ready to make that jump despite the fact that he doesn't have a ton of experience for the Gophers, or maybe Fredrickson with this extended break can figure out whatever has been wrong and and get back to being the pitcher he was as a freshman. But either way, Minnesota is going to need something. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. I was just going to say that's kind of been the case two the last couple of years with Minnesota is they they've had 
reasons to kind of be optimistic. It was, I mean, for a while it was like, man, they're going to have Max Meyer and Patrick Fredrickson in the rotation for the next two years. And didn't quite play out that way because of Fredrickson's struggles. And then you had big arms like Sam Thorison, who, you know, you talk to opposing coaches that would come through playing Minnesota and they would say like, that guy's stuff is electric. I mean, that's like, in terms of just raw stuff, I mean, that's in the, like a Max Meyer neighborhood. And, you know, he struggled to really be consistent enough to turn that into much of anything. So, uh, you know, Minnesota is kind of in that spot where they've been now just minus the Max Meyer piece, which is the important part. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was a little surprised. You know, we're talking about Myers, the third overall pick. Torkelson is the first pick. Number two overall was Heston Kerstad. And, you know, he checks in here at nine. And Heston Kerstad is really, really good. Um, and, and to see him at nine is a little bit surprising on its face. But, you know, I'm not here to argue with the list that I helped put together. You know, it's just that kind of jumps out like, oh, he went second overall, but we're, we're ranking him ninth. And some of that is that he is a singular player versus, you know, we have a few rotations ranked ahead of him where Miami's whole rotation is gone. Oklahoma's whole rotation is gone. And, um, you know, Georgia and Louisville lost two members and Arizona state lost three quarters of their infield. So some of that is just multiple players stacking up to, to get in ahead of Hester Kerstad. But some of it also, I guess, I think Joe, at least for me is that, I don't know. I trust the hogs to hit. And, you know, so no Heston Kerstad won't be at the the heart of that order. And that is going to be an adjustment for them and and something they're going to have to figure out life without. But I don't think either one of us thinks that all of a sudden Arkansas is going to forget how to hit. No, not at all. Like that's, I think that's the big reason why he's down at number nine is, you know, Arkansas is going to, going to hit and I think they'll be just fine. And, and I don't want to downplay what Kerstad was to the program because I, uh, spoiler alert for the reader, like I wrote the, the bulk of that paragraph for Heston Kerstad. And I, I believe that when we look back 10 years from now and think about those Arkansas teams from 18 to 20, 2018 to 2020, to clarify, uh, there are a lot of players you could point to. I mean, Isaiah Campbell, maybe, you know, Casey Martin, and some of that will have to do fair or unfair with what those players do as professionals because that kind of makes people remember players differently but I think we might look back at Hester and Kerstad as the guy that kind of uh, represents those teams in our head you know time will tell we'll have to see so I don't want to downplay what he was but but you're right I, I mean they're going to bring back Christian Franklin you know just a, a really dynamic player in his own right who was a little bit overshadowed and Robert Moore who we just got a glimpse at in 2020 but man that that kid looked like he belonged like um and, and there was, you know, anytime a guy enrolls early and is, is younger than he should be as a freshman, there's questions about, is he ready for this level? And, and he answered that in the affirmative. So I don't really have any sort of questions about Arkansas offensively going into to 2021, not just because of the individual pieces, but because it's Arkansas and they, they always find a way to put quality offenses on the field. Yeah, absolutely. So another one, that kind of jumps out for me uh, on the high end, though, is Aaron Sabato at number 11. And what we just said about Arkansas, basically the the reverse here for Sabato. Sabato uh, went to the Twins somewhere in the 20s. I should know exactly where it was. Um, But, you know, he he gets drafted as a first-rounder, a late first-rounder to the Twins. Uh, But he he has far surpassed that, and he's doing it basically just as a one-man show here basically because 
you take Sabato out of the UNC offense and uh, it's not looking great right now. The, or at least it wouldn't have looked great in 2020 without Aaron Sabato. To an extent, we could have also mentioned Dylan Harris here because he signed as a free agent with the Orioles. And if you take those two guys out of the UNC lineup, they no longer have a player who hit more than two home runs returning. So, you know, there's, there's going to be some significant power uh, that UNC has to find a way to make up for in their lineup. They combined for 12 of UNC's 20 home runs. And, you know, I, I mentioned they only have guys who had two home runs remaining. One of those is Joey Lancelotti, who is newly minted two-way player, Joey Lancelotti. Uh, he came to school with two-way ability, but had just pitched for the first couple of years of his career. They throw him in as a hitter this year, and he does uh, produce seven extra base hits in 60 at-bats in the shortened season. Uh, so there's definitely some juice in there, but... You know, I don't know what their plans are for Lancelotti necessarily going into next year, uh, but I, it, it looks like he's going to have to continue to be a two-way player because he has some some big-time punch that the lineup is otherwise going to be lacking. Uh, the other guy with multiple home runs was Dallas Tesser. So you know, they're, it, it's, a, it's a lineup that is going to need to find some power. They have guys that can hit for power, like that's not – it's not a lineup that's totally devoid of that. They're just going to need a guy like Tyler Causey, who in a part-time role as a true freshman, um, you know, did, did hit one home run in 17 at-bats. He's going to need to, to do more, or, or they're going to need it from somebody else. And you know, so the lineup at, at UNC is missing two pretty significant pieces. Sabato, the biggest one of them, and, um, you know, power – it's going to be, I, I think it's fair to wonder right now where UNC is going to get the thump from in its offense next year. Yeah, I'm not sure. And this, this, is, this is an honest statement. I'm not sure if it makes me more or less confident moving forward that Joey Lancelotti was like a revelation on offense because on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe he is kind of an impact bat this whole time. They just haven't been fully utilizing and maybe there's an answer there. The flip side of it is like, well, clearly he wasn't really much of an option for most of his career. And yes, he was an effective pitcher and that was the focus. But on the other hand, like, you know, if he really was an impact bat, you'd think it would have come around before now. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure if it makes me more or less confident moving forward, but it's, it's definitely, definitely something. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of the guys towards the back here that are definitely falling under the category of, you know, player who the program will just struggle to, to replace because the program typically doesn't have players of, of that caliber. The one that fits least into this because it's a good program is San Diego State's Casey Schmidt. I just kind of wanted to give him a shout out because really good two-way player that, uh, you know, never really felt like he got his due. And some of it was because there's been other really good two-way players the last couple of years in college baseball. So he was always kind of, I remember, when we were doing our preseason, you know, we put the ballots together for preseason All-Americans that we send to scouting directors. And as I was putting that together, I was like, man, Casey Schmidt might not even get on the third team here because there was just kind of a glut of those guys. So many of whom were, were more famous. And sometimes that matters when these scouting directors are picking like the third team guy. It could just be they go with the name they remember from when the guy was a, was a, was a prep player. Um, 
So just a shout out to him because he was really good for the Aztecs. San Diego State's a good program, though. They're the most likely to be able to, to replace him. The two other guys, though, UC Davis shortstop Tanner Murray, who is a really, really accomplished hitter. You know, I talked um, talked about a little bit about Tanner Murray with some folks around that program earlier in the season. And, you know, they said that he could have hit 400 this year. And that's a stretch probably, but he hit 364 as a sophomore. So it's not completely outlandish. and um, you know, above average arm, you know, good instinctual defender at shortstop, had some power, but UC Davis plays in a huge park in a pitcher's league, and he was just never going to be able to hit for power given those circumstances. And the other was Arkansas Little Rock catcher Kale Imshoff, and, and Teddy, you were, you've been on Imshoff longer than I have. You kind of um, alerted me to him early in the season, but the numbers he put up in 2020 are just absurd, where his slash line is 417, 527, 800, with seven home runs and 60, 60 at-bats, uh, which is insane. And, you know, would would that have slowed down? Probably. You know, it's, it's unlikely Caleb Shaw hits 30 home runs. But uh, you never know, and, and we will never know. But, uh, that you know, that's the type of player that at Arkansas Little Rock, you know, um, is just going to struggle to have a player of that quality, at least right out of the gate. And Another special shout out to Kalen Schaaf because he's, he's kind of a cool story where he was a guy who really just got a lot better as his career went on. He hit 214 as a freshman, was a solid hitter as, as a sophomore in 2018, missed all of 2019 with injury, and then comes out of the gate on fire in 2020. So kind of a cool story from that standpoint. It wasn't like, and this is not a knock on Nick Gonzalez, but it was very clear early in Nick Gonzalez's career at New Mexico State, the rest of the country had just missed on Nick Gonzalez. Whether you thought his, he was a pro prospect or not, he was definitely productive from minute one for New Mexico State. Kalen Schaaf was a little bit different story. So it is kind of cool that, that his story is a little bit like that versus the immediate success of someone like Nick Gonzalez. Yeah, that's an interesting group here we have at the back. Um, you know, there were there are other candidates, obviously, for, for these spots. You know, we talked about Dylan Dingler, Ohio State's catcher. Um, you know, we... we we talked about Xavier Warren, Central Michigan's uh, kind of utility guy. Honestly, where were they playing Warren this year? Third base, shortstop. Yeah, it was it, he got he it got drafted infield, as a yeah. catcher? Maybe like he can yeah. do a lot of things. Yeah, he's, um, he's a weird player too because he's he's one of those guys you can't look at him and kind of see what he should be. Like he's got like a unique body. Like he's not wiry. He's strong, but he's not like a really a physical presence. Like he, I think that's part of the reason why he's kind of hard to peg sometimes even at the pro level because it's hard to really see what sometimes you you look at the the body and you're like that you know this is the position for this guy based on his body and you can't really do that with Xavier Warren and and we did not account for first rounders like Garrett Crochet who isn't on this list because Tennessee was just fine without him for the most part this year like that's enough to say that they wouldn't have been better with him certainly but you saw what Tennessee was without Crochet and uh it was it was still a pretty good team uh, or Carmen Blajinski, South Carolina. You know, so there there are plenty of big time players that, that didn't make this list, but uh, it was it was an interesting thing to put together. And you know, honestly, the thing that I was I, I liked the most about it was kind of trying to look at how some of these teams are are going to go about filling the holes. You know, in some cases, you know, maybe a Bryce Jarvis at Duke. Uh, you know, it's pretty obvious that Cooper Stinson is just going to move up a day in the rotation. And, okay, there's a new Friday starter. Uh, but, you know, in, in some places, you know, like Ole Miss's infield, they have, um, you know, they have to replace the left side of their infield. 
field. They, they've got options over there. I, I don't know exactly how it's going to shake out. I don't know that they know how it's going to shake out or Mississippi State's middle infield. Um, you know, they have to replace both Foscue and Westberg. And I don't know exactly how it's going to shake out. I mean, I can give you some guys that are going to be in the mix, but I don't know precisely what they're going to land on. And so it's just going to be interesting as we get into the fall, which is coming, uh, you know, there are, you know, fall ball and whatever form it takes, assuming it takes a form is, is not that far away. And so there are going to be some very interesting position battles out there. And so you can look at this kind of as a, uh, you know, kind of a preview for those. And also like a, a one last look at, at, you know, these players who, who moved on into the professional ranks from the, uh, this year's draft. All right, Joe, I also want to mention uh, a sad note. You heard uh, Skip Johnson touch on it a little bit there in the interview, uh, but last week, longtime coach, uh, much be beloved college baseball coach from, from those who got to spend time around him, Mike Gillespie, uh, died uh, at the age of 80. He won the national title, both as a player and a coach at USC. Uh, as a player in 1961, and as a coach in 1998, also coached UC Irvine and started his career at the College of the Canyons, um, where junior college in California that had just started, like just opened its doors, uh, and then he came in, founded the program, and made it into a, a really successful junior college program before he uh, took over at his alma mater. Um, as as head coach there at USC just uh you know fascinating baseball mind and you know again if you talk to people out out on the west coast or really anyone around the country who got to to you know talk with him or coach with him or coach against him uh very very well respected within college baseball yeah no doubt and he, he gets um you know I'm guilty of this a little bit too we, we talked a lot the last couple of years about this group of legendary coaches highlighted by Mike Martin kind of moving on. And Mike Gillespie is one when he left UC Irvine at the end of the 2018 season that, that I would kind of get lost in the shuffle. Part of that is because his last few years at UC Irvine didn't go as probably as he would have liked. So some of that just naturally happens when your program isn't front and center, the way Florida States or with Jim Morris in Miami, the way Miami is, that's part of that deal there. Um, but that's not to say that, that that that's not to say that should be happening though, because he really was, especially on the West Coast, one of the true giants of the sport. And what he did at USC, uh, you know, coming in and, and taking that program over after what it had been under Rod Dato was not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, there's there's talk all the time about how hard it is to be the guy that comes after the guy. And while Mike Gillespie didn't do what Rod Dato had done at USC, uh, su sub note, uh, because nobody could have, by the way, uh, college baseball had changed enough at that point. Nobody was going to do what USC had done under Dato. Still, though, that was a, a huge set of shoes to fill. And Mike Gillespie filled them about as well as you could have wanted. Um, you know, a bunch of regionals right out of the gate. Took him a while to get back to Omaha, but once he gets back to Omaha, wins a you know, gets, you know, uh, there in 95, wins a championship in, in 98, back to Omaha in 2001. Um, and, you know, I, uh, 2000, 2001, pardon me. And, um, 
You know, I don't think, um, you know, you look at, uh, you know, I'll just put it this way. I think, um, you know, at, at the time his run ended at USC, I think we see with what happened at USC in the years afterward. I, I know sometimes it can be, these programs uh, never want to, you know, um, they feel pressured to kind of keep things fresh and moving in the right direction. But I think you see what happened at USC after Mike Gillespie left and understand that, that, uh, you know, and, and with what he did at UC Irvine immediately after that, that he still had a lot to give. So I was, I was, as a college baseball fan who remembers that period of time, I was really, really heartened to see what he did at UC Irvine. Um, that was a cool deal. You know, he took, took that program over after it had been kind of kickstarted by coaches like John Savage and really kept that ball rolling there. So that was, that was cool to see. Um, so just a, a, um, sad to hear the news and, and rest in peace to one of, um, one of the great college baseball coaches in the history of our game, uh, in Mike Gillespie and, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, I will not continue to make the mistake of not putting him in that class because he absolutely 100% deserves to be in that class. It's really unbelievable. All the guys that, you know, left the game at around the same time to Morris and Mike Martin, Augie Garrido, Mike Gillespie, Mark Marquess. Um, when you, when you consider the totalities of their career careers and, and now, uh, Augie Garrido, uh, died two years ago now. Um, Mike Gillespie is now uh, dead as well. And I mean, we're, we're losing, you know, kind of that generation of coaches, both from the actual game and, and now uh, from our college baseball lives as well. So uh, just, just something to think about as, um, you know, as we, we go on and into this off season, just the, the guys that, that have, uh, you know, have moved on from the game and, uh, Michael Gillespie, uh, certainly worth worth remembering and will be remembered, especially around uh, around USC again, helping them win a national title, both as a player and a coach. One of just two people or two men in uh, in college baseball history to do that. Jerry Kindle uh, being the other, he uh, he won a national title at Minnesota as a player and then a couple uh, as Arizona's head coach. So those are the only two that have ever done it. It's uh, it's a very exclusive company and, and very impressive company to, to be a part of considering uh, the legacies, both of, of Kindle and Gillespie. On that note, we're, uh, we're going to wrap this up for the week. Um, Joe and I are continuing to produce content over at baseballamerica.com that I would encourage you to check out. Again, you can find the top 25 from this week uh, over there. We'll have uh, some other work uh, throughout the week. Joe's stock watch, conference stock watches, uh, that those are continuing uh, through through this month. So you can check those out uh, as, uh, I don't know, we probably have about 20 of them online now, I would guess. Maybe yeah. I should count. I looked at, I looked at the sheet the other day. A rough count says we're, that's about right. We're about two thirds of the way through. So we, we still got, I think they're going through mid-September. So We've still got uh, several more to go through, but most of the biggies, um, SEC, ACC, Big 12, Pac-12, American, are online now. Um, so if you're a fan of a team in one of those conferences and want to see what that's all about, those are out there and available. So make sure to check those out. Um, I'll, uh, I'll have some more stuff out there uh, this week as well. Uh, so yeah, we encourage you to, to go to the website. Also, there's plenty of pro coverage if you're into that. So. Uh, make sure to check out baseballamerica.com. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. 
And like I mentioned before, please subscribe to the College Podcast on your favorite podcasting app and rate and review if, uh, if you can do so as well. We really appreciate everyone who takes the time to do so. We will be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast next week. Until then, I want to thank uh, Skip Johnson for joining us. Thanks to Joe, as always, and thank you to you guys for listening each and every week here to the Baseball America College Podcast. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.